Welcome back to the Synaptic Tales podcast with your hosts, Emma Hancocks, TVM Technical Vet, and Mark Lowry, RCVS and European Specialist in Veterinary Neurology and Co-Director of Movement Referrals. Hi, Mark. How are you today? Yeah, very well, thank you. Nice to be back again. Yeah, good. Nice to have you back as well. Over the last three episodes, we've chatted about the importance of owner communication, what we need to measure, particularly on blood samples, and how to advise our clients in order to manage our epileptic patients. If you are a new listener, now is probably a good time to pause this episode and go back and take a listen to those earlier episodes so that you know what we're talking about, because we will be referencing them as we go through. Because this episode really does follow on from the previous. So if you remember at the end of the last one, we were talking about how to manage our owners and how to advise appropriately. And this one is all about being realistic. So the first thing I wanted to pick up with you, actually, Mark, is we mentioned last time about referral and how actually it's not inappropriate to refer a case, of course, but it was all about being realistic with these epileptic patients. But I was just wondering actually afterwards, are there times that you would definitely want people to refer to you? Yeah, I've said it's never wrong to refer. So if ever you feel like you should refer a case, there is absolutely nothing wrong in that. But yeah, the indications to actually refer a case. I think if you've got a dog that is showing what I like to call hard neurological deficits, that would be a reason to go for referral. So we're always thinking, yes, we have seizures, but how is the dog outside of that? Now, you can get what I call less hard neurological signs like behavioral changes. Maybe a dog's a bit more clingy to an owner. That's a common one we come across. Maybe they're not quite as playful as they once were. They're the soft signs, which I think can happen in any scenario. And so I don't worry about them. But the hard neurological signs would be those attributable to the forebrain. And I don't like talking about the brain in too much of a complicated way because I don't think I'd understand it. But I like to think of the brain like a big black box. And you can divide it into forebrain, cerebellum, and brainstem. When we talk about seizures, we're talking about forebrain problems. So we can forget about the rest. Forebrain disease. Signs of forebrain disease, the most common is seizures, but after that you can get signs of central blindness. So this is dogs where, yes, they're blind, but they have normal pupillary light reflexes. So it was maybe an helmet problem. You might find the PLRs damaged in some way. So they'll have no menace, but the PLRs are present. You might find the dogs will start pacing more than normal and by pacing, just being restless. So a nice question I like to ask an owner would be outside of the seizures does your dog settle well at home and it's amazing how many owners won't have volunteered the information partly because they may not have realized but they'll say yeah actually my dog can't settle at night we'll be sat down watching the tv and my dog's just pacing around the living room that is a red flag for me if they say that that tells me there's more going on than just a simple idiopathic epilepsy i see the other one would be circling as well so these can be almost around the edge of a room And you'll find they often go in one direction. It's worth asking an owner about that too. And the final one to mention, and this is possibly my favorite question of all for any seizuring patient (laughs) and one that should always be asked. I'm excited. Have I oversold it? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The question I would ask is, does your dog now toilet in the house when maybe they haven't before? You need to ask that last bit because some dogs just toilet in the house. Yeah. It's what they do. But if they've learned to toilet outside, as all well-trained dogs should, I've got a puppy at the minute that is yet to do that, so that's hard work. (laughs) If they are well-trained and they toilet outside and they've always been good at that, if they've started to have inappropriate soiling in the house, that again is a big red flag. 
it shows loss of learned behavior. And again, that's something owners are almost embarrassed to admit to. So unless you probe them and ask that question specifically, it might not be volunteered. Because all of these things come back to the fact that the big elephant in the room is the seizures. Yes. And so often we focus on the seizures and we don't think about the behavior outside of that. So I would be asking all of these sorts of questions. Sometimes, and dare I say it, this avoids the need for a neurological exam. So asking about circling, pacing, being blind, and loss of toilet training, they are almost a great substitute for the seizuring patient. Because if owners are saying to them there's something wrong or abnormal, I found that they're almost more sensitive than the neurological exam itself at picking up early disease. I see. And to go back to your question, so if you get a red flag in one or more of these, that's an indication you've got hard neurological signs. Therefore, you've potentially got a significant problem in the forebrain and referral sensible. Because that's that going to lead sense. on in an owner where they want to do everything. That would mean an MRI scan is more indicated. Yeah. We have talked about epilepsy on a budget, and it's fair to say owners with these dogs may be on a budget, but then at least you've still got more information you can say to those owners. It's looking less likely to be epilepsy. It's more likely to be one of these other conditions. So yes, yes, you don't have the money for an MRI scan, but let's look at what these conditions are, what's likely. And I think it's probably worth bringing up now. If you have all of those signs and they can't afford MRI, even if they haven't got any of those signs and they can't afford MRI, I always say time is as good as an MRI scan. What I mean by that is if you just monitor that dog, then you maybe start your anti-epileptic treatment and do all the other things we've talked about. But if you just monitor that dog, if there's something sinister underlying this, you will become aware of it fairly quickly. And that awareness will come about in how the dog's behaving in between the fits. So yeah. these signs we've discussed might start to present themselves. So then an owner can go away knowing, let's look out for inappropriate soiling in the house. Let's look out for pacing. Let's look out for circling. And if they see that, that tells you it's just a bit more information to tell you, yes, this isn't idiopathic epilepsy anymore. It's something else. So I find that really important. That makes sense. And I guess there probably is going to be a, a subset of dogs potentially that come to you. We've said 97% confident. And one of those is if they're normal interictally, but they might be, I guess, at that point. But I suppose we wouldn't expect them to deteriorate as quick or develop other signs if they were truly epileptics. And I'm really glad you've mentioned that because that's absolutely right. So these dogs, they might deteriorate in terms of seizure frequency and yeah. severity. That's fine. That happens with idiopathic epilepsy. We've said it's a progressive disease. That's, dare I say it, it's almost inevitable. But what we're hoping is their behavior in between remains the same. Yeah. And that's what's important. If it doesn't, then we move away from epilepsy onto considering one of these more more significant conditions that cause structural disease and potentially become life-threatening. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Although I think some of the signs that you picked up might be consistent with things like cognitive dysfunction and things. So I guess they're also non-specific. We don't truly know the cause, but I guess that would come back to the age, the signalment, that sort of thing. It would. And I think that's a good point too, because you're right. If you look at the clinical signs for, say, a brain tumor versus cognitive dysfunction, the signs may be very similar. The difference between the two would be with cognitive dysfunction, it tends to be a very slowly progressive condition. So cognitive dysfunction can cause really bad signs over time, but really very slowly. And I'd potentially say over years, over a year, two years, three years. 
Whereas a brain tumor, if you've got those sorts of signs over three years, that's suddenly not a brain tumor. Brain tumors, unfortunately, progress quite rapidly. And I'd say over several months maximum. So if you're getting these signs developing quite quickly and rapidly, I'd move away from cognitive dysfunction and more to brain tumor or something like that. The other thing is with cognitive dysfunction, you wouldn't really expect to see seizures unless, again, cognitive dysfunction are older dogs. Maybe those older dogs are developing other problems, metabolic problems, renal disease, liver disease, yes. and they could cause secondary seizures in that way. But true cognitive dysfunction without any other comorbidities shouldn't cause epileptic seizures. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. So the other time that you might want to consider referral would be with those dogs that are really hard to control. And I think there's a lot to be said for referring those patients to a veterinary neurology specialist simply because it gives the owner's chance to sit down with somebody who's familiar with these alternative medications, these difficult situations where you have what we call a refractory patient that isn't controlled with the standard medication. And it just gives them an understanding of why maybe they're in that situation. Hopefully, it will be an opportunity for them to realize it's not you as a vet that's the problem. They're not seeing a bad vet. Yeah. They're seeing a bad dog. Yeah. Um, and so there's a real reassurance there for the owner that actually everything has been done correctly. They're just very unfortunate to have a dog that's this badly affected. Yeah. They can be hard, those. And I think those owners need more time because they're facing a very difficult situation. And those difficult situations, you have to be frank. You have to say that sometimes these things can be so bad. Owners almost feel a relief sometimes to be told that, that it wasn't, it's not just them being, being difficult as a client or anything. And maybe they feel the experience of it is too much for them. It's quite normal having an epileptic dog in the household that you're medicating with many drugs each day. That can be a real burden. And I think owners hearing that, yeah. it allows them to feel that burden. Yeah, it's and reassuring. Doing, it is reassuring. And the burden of this is really helpful for those owners to just allow them to feel that and hopefully move forward with a plan. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's good to have a plan where they go, well, and this is our plan. They're probably on plan E by this point, but here's plan E. <laughs> yeah. But then if E doesn't work, we've got F and G. But it's also fair to say, actually, after plan G, I'm afraid that's it. There's nothing more we can do because there is always an end. And I think owners need to know that yeah. there comes a point when we can't do more. And like you say, it's just establishing as well that trust with the initial mm -hmm. referring clinician as well, that actually look, they have done everything right. Yeah. And this, these are really tricky cases. So it's almost a second opinion almost at that point, isn't it, as well? It is. It's having the same discussions often. Obviously, you guys are much better at bringing in those weird and wonderful drugs that we don't use. The other thing is they're going to go away and Google, aren't they? Oh, they're going to go away and Google yeah. and find out, can we mention Google? Other search engines are available. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they can go away and they'll read about these other things and they'll always come back with something that maybe you've never heard about. Yes. I say that because they'll come back to me with things I've never heard about, but I suppose it just, it's important to be quite clear with them. So it might well be that snake oil, I've made that up. <laughs> I was going to say, is this a new one? <laughs> <laughs> snake oil may well help the dog with seizures but there's no evidence behind it and of course you can't say there's no harm in it because i've just made it up but, <laughs> but you'd always be cautious with these things and say yes you might find one thing that will help you or you might read an anecdote where it helped one individual with their dog but it doesn't mean it helps every dog and yeah. sometimes these things epilepsy waxes and wanes so you'll have periods when seizures can be really bad in some dogs and other periods when it goes away it's inevitable that will have introduced the snake oil, say, at a period <laughs> when the seizures weren't going to return. So actually, they can falsely believe it's working really, really well. But they're very quick to dismiss two or three months later when the seizures come back that 
must just be getting worse. And it's like, well, no, no, it's, that was the nature of the course of the disease. Yeah. So it's easy to attribute benefits to many of these alternative medications, or indeed some of the medications we use conventionally yeah. to go, oh, it's worked really well. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe, we never know what was going to happen if yeah. we hadn't started those drugs. I really want to dig into some of these alternatives if we can, but maybe just before we do that, when we talk about a refractory patient, so I feel like this is a conversation we're more getting into is these more complicated ones, if that's right. So what, what is meant, and we'll come back to the complimentary stuff. Don't worry, everyone listeners. But what do we mean by refractory? What is that? So refractory epilepsy. Some people call it pharmacoresistant epilepsy. To okay. make it sound even more fancy. That's very fancy. So, so what is pharmacoresistant what, epilepsy? <laughs> pharmacoresistant <laughs> epilepsy is when you have a dog that is on the conventional medication. Traditionally, we say phenobarbital with bromide as appropriate doses. So the serum concentrations, they're in the appropriate therapeutic range. I think um, that's important. In it the is, appropriate range. <laughs> because actually, yes, it's true. If they're not in the appropriate range, they're not being used effectively. So that dog may not be refractory or pharmacoresistant. But yeah. if they're in that appropriate range and they're still having regular fits, i.e. they're not controlled, we talk about control of epilepsy being more than a 50% reduction in seizure frequency. So if they aren't achieving that on these appropriate doses, that would be a refractory patient. Now, it's really important, and we've touched on it in a previous podcast, to say that 30% of dogs with idiopathic epilepsy can be refractory. So that's a huge number. That is, Three yeah. out of 10. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say it here. Um, you might edit this bit out. But I'm nervous now. <laughs> What's he going to say? Well, well, so the way I like to liken it, and the, the way that owners seem to relate to it, that you have to be careful which owner you pick, because as you may find, you could cause offence. <laughs> um, I'm very nervous now. Well, I think of a dog with epilepsy, like being the man that's had seven wives. Okay. That he's divorced. Sorry. Okay. So not, he's not a bigamist. So in that situation, you've had a man that's married seven different women. And for one reason or another, the marriage hasn't been successful and he's divorced. So in that scenario, consider that and consider that man and go, would you blame the wives? Is it, is it the, the seven women? Being a woman are, myself, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but equally, you know, I suppose you could say it could have been all of their faults on seven different occasions. But actually, if we turn it on its head, it's probably more likely to be there's a problem with the man. Now, Makes sense. back to the epileptic dog. We've tried this dog on seven different anti-epileptic medication, medications and not achieved control. So I don't go, it's phenobarbital's fault. And actually, yeah. when we put bromide in, that was a bit rubbish too. And levetiracetam, well, I don't know why we even bothered for the money for that one. It's not the medication's fault. We yeah. know the medication can be very effective in epileptic dogs. So we sadly have to purely square the blame on the dog's epilepsy. And so that's the way I see these pharmacoresistant epileptic dogs, that you're not going to suddenly find a medication that's going to be the golden bullet and cure all. And it doesn't mean you don't add in a third or a fourth medication, but it would be wrong to bring that owner along on that journey and say, let's try zinisamide today. And then for them to go home with this zinisamide, it's quite an expensive drug. And for them to be quite excited, that might be the thing that stops the seizures because look, taking a step back, it's very clear that won't happen. Yeah. You might get a small reduction in fits, but if this is a dog that's fitting, I don't know, say seven times a week, maybe we'll just get five fits in a week. And that yeah. isn't a significant reduction. And unless the owners are keeping a diary, you'd accept they may not even notice that reduction in frequency. Yeah. So this happens a lot. And those refractory dogs are the hardest to manage. 
but those in owners need that conversation. Yeah. And so are these refractory dogs, are they refractory from day one or do they develop so refractory epilepsy with time? Or Fantastic question. And I think it's fair to say different things happen. So there are certain indicators when we see these dogs that might give us a warning that they could be refractory. Yeah. So breed is one of them. Generally, a Border Collie with seizures, I'd be a bit more worried about than, say, Jack Russell. So the Border Collie has some mutations in some of the ion channels in the brain that can prevent penetration of certain anti-epileptic drugs to stop the drugs working as effectively in epilepsy. So that can happen with them. But then there's other breeds. I think I could pick out German Shepherd dogs, Weimaraners, their dogs. I'm just slightly more nervous around right. with epilepsy. But that's not meaning that I'll see a Weimaraner with seizures and I'll just paint a picture of gloom at all. So that's one thing. The other thing that is very important to say about epilepsy is it's one of the few diseases where the older you are when you get it, the better. Oh, okay. So most conditions, as you get older, you would imagine they're always going to be worse. But this is one where actually the young dogs getting epilepsy, they've got the poorer prognosis because they've got a longer period yeah. to live with those seizures. Yeah. So a longer period for those seizures to progress. We've said epilepsy is progressive. So actually, if they're two years old when they're diagnosed, by the age of six, they've lived with that for four years. So there's every chance seizures could be quite difficult to manage at that point. So a young dog with epilepsy, unfortunately, has a poorer prognosis. Again, that doesn't mean I'm going to do anything too differently, but that owner needs to be aware of that. Yeah. That's a worry that we're having to go down the route of medicating at such a young age. And in that scenario, I'd want to save drugs back as much as I can. Yeah. Because if we did throw all the medication onto that dog because it's young and it's got bad seizures, you've got nowhere to go in the future. So if it did go on to phenobarbital and bromide, and, and some dogs do need to go on two medications quite quickly early on in the disease course. But if you do that, you're reducing future options, which may be the right thing to do. It's a tailored approach. Yeah. Make sure you do it correctly. Because it is going to progress at some point. You need something in your armory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do we know why some dogs are refractory? We don't. And I think it's fair to say we use the term idiopathic epilepsy. We don't really know what that is. Yeah. So idiopathic epilepsy is the most horrendous umbrella term for probably a number of different disorders that present with dogs having seizures. So yes, it's fair to say we probably believe most of them have got genetic abnormalities that result in epilepsy. But dare I say it, there are some of the dogs out there that may have something in their diet that causes the seizures, for example. So I can think of a study that was done so many years ago now on a very small subset of dogs. I want to say it was seven. Seven dogs with pharmacoresistant or refractory epilepsy. And they also had, as it happened, other sort of allergic type problems. And what I mean by that is maybe skin allergies right. or gut yeah. allergies or both. Now, these dogs were on appropriate doses of phenobarbital and potassium bromide, and they just weren't controlled. They had frequent fits. And from memory, it was more than one a week at that point. But then what they did was they went onto a hypoallergenic diet, these dogs, that was very strictly followed. And in three of the seven dogs, they actually got a reduction of more than 50% in seizure frequency oh my by goodness. just changing the diet. They didn't mess with the medication. And then from that, it's fair to say that one of those dogs went completely seizure-free as well. So it's pretty good. So that's where you think, actually, if I'm an owner with a dog on lots of medication, I hear this study 
for these dogs. Actually, let's try a diet. It sounds brilliant. That yeah. is the solution. But of course, there's so many facts in there. This is quite anecdotal. It was never published, which tells you immediately there are failings in the study. And what I mean yeah. by failings is it's not rigorous enough to put through. And the follow-up wasn't long enough to say, was this sustained? Mm -hmm. But that, just that little anecdote tells you that you know, these are dogs with presumed idiopathic epilepsy. They could have been having some allergic reaction to something in the diet. And who knows? The jury's out. But that's one example where, whether it was genetic or not, there was some dietary alteration yeah. that helped in those individuals. So we don't know. But I think there's many things it could be. The one thing it isn't is toxin. <laughs> that's what I'd say. And I think we've covered that. But yeah, you can definitely stop blaming the neighbor by this point when the <laughs> yeah. seizures are that recurrent. Yeah. And I think you've really led us quite nicely there talking about diet onto these like other therapeutic, like non-medicinal options, really. So I, I know I just want to talk about the elephant in the room sometimes because you are going to get questions about them as first opinion vets. And honestly, we don't have a lot of time to go reading any research behind these things. So I want to pick up on a couple of things. Things like diet, does it play a role? I'm hearing a lot about there are commercial diets out there now for neurological, I will just call them neurological diseases. Maybe it's cognitive dysfunction, maybe it's epilepsy. But also then the role of things like medium chain triglycerides the mct type oils what do you think about those is there any evidence are they worth it yeah so that there is evidence with these i think all of those are very similar in the sense you've got the diets it's all based around medium chain triglycerides and they're either in the diet or you're supplementing them with i think coconut oil is the one that's frequently mentioned that sort of idea so whether you're giving it as a supplement or whether you're giving it in a diet and as you say commercially available diets are available they are a way of trying to manage seizures now, the evidence that we have there, there are studies that have shown it where they have reduced seizure frequency, but not in every dog. And in the dogs where it does reduce seizure frequency, it isn't necessarily to a level that would be considered to be amazing in right. owners', owners views. So I think there's absolutely a place for that. If owners have used conventional medication, I'd never use it as an alternative to conventional medication. But if they've gone down the route of trying the conventional drugs we've discussed, there's absolutely nothing wrong with trying that in addition. And it might give some further control. It might not. It depends on the dog very much, on how pharmacoresistance is and what the cause is. But there absolutely is a, an area to try. But as with all the other things we've talked about, the owner must be aware, it might be a complete waste of time for that individual dog. Yeah. If it works, they'll celebrate. But if it doesn't, it's quite an expensive process to go through. With diet as well, depending on how frequent the seizures are, you might need to try it for a long time. And okay. actually, this goes for all the different drugs and therapies we'll discuss, that if you have a dog having one seizure every six weeks, giving a diet for six, six weeks is not going to help. It's, if you get a six-week period without seizures, that's expected. So you really need to do it for much, much longer. So potentially two or three times longer than that gap. So that could be 18 weeks. And when you start thinking about 18 weeks, you know, well, that's a long time to try this diet before you can say it really hasn't worked. Yeah. And the waxing and waning nature, yeah. as we've talked about, of epilepsy means there may be periods when actually it'll feel like the diet's making it worse. Yeah. When actually, no, it probably isn't. It's probably just you've had a sort of slight cluster of fits and then it could really settle down for a much longer period. So that's a tough one. And the other thing, just to make it even harder, is owners want to try everything. Yeah. Now they can do that and throw the baby in the bathwater out <laughs> with it. You really, it's the logical way to do it is do one thing at a time. 
So in this scenario where your dog has one seizure every six weeks, if you're going to do it for a trial of something for 18 weeks, you're going to have to wait 18 weeks until you try the next thing. Yes. That's a laborious process. I mean, that, yeah. that is really tough for any owner to go through. Needless to say, in the meantime, their dog's fitting. So it's a tough thing. But again, with the right communication, owners can be aware of that. They can take it on themselves to try these things. There's certainly no harm in diet, changing diet in the majority of dogs. So it's a fairly safe thing to do. I've said drugs have adverse effects. I think it's fair to say most diets don't. There will be individuals that will react to a specific diet, but it's a fairly safe thing to change. I always think if I had a dog with epilepsy, I think diet is something I would explore because I know there are dogs out there that absolutely benefit from it. But I wouldn't want owners to go away from a consult thinking most dogs benefit from diet. That's not strictly true. Or that it's an adjunct by the sound of it to traditional medication rather than instead of. Are you ever in a position that you can reduce any medication with adding these things in or is it always just on top of? There is a whole discussion we could have there that you bring up about reducing medication in general. I think with epilepsy, once you've started something and something works, I never change a winning team. it's (laughs) It's not the right thing to do, I don't feel. However, if you are in the fortunate position where for one reason or another everything's gone, maybe you've fluked it because... To be fair, it often is like that. You've just (laughs) been lucky that the stars have aligned and things have gone well. There is the option of reducing medication then to try and see if they can be managed on diet alone or whatever. But similarly, if diet works and you get off all the medication, maybe in time you can reintroduce other foods and find try and find exactly what it was that helped. Right. I think it's always a risk. And I think if you are to reduce medication and take out things, owners need to be aware of the risk of withdrawal seizures. If you stop being above till suddenly you're going to cause a dog seizures to get a whole lot worse. And that could be status. So they, the owners need to know that. And we will reduce phenobarbital slowly, but I'm scared of doing it. But you will get some owners that are on board and want to do it because they really don't want their dog to remain on it, on medication for life. Yeah. I like them to have been seizure-free for a good six to 12 months before you even consider that. Yeah. So it's not a conversation I'd have whilst the dog still has fits. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I'm sorry. I'm going to talk about CBD oils now because it's a really common question I used to get asked in practice and was never sure what I should be advising it sounds again a minefield here can you help us (laughs) yeah I think there was a period not that long ago before we had a pandemic or something like that where it was a big yeah it was a big big topic and it was coming up in the news a lot so certainly with people with epilepsy there was a big discussion around it and the benefits in individuals and all that sort of thing now Yes, I think there's evidence there in people to show there is a benefit to CBD oil. You've got to get the right one. You can't just okay. go out and get CBD oil and hope it works. You've got to do it appropriately. There's not any hard evidence yet that it works in dogs. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. There's just no evidence there. Yeah. It means we've not been able to get the studies done and things. I've got no problem with people trying it. I know of many veterinary neurologists that will consider using it as another step once other avenues have been exhausted so if you've gone through your conventional medication it is something people add in now it's not cheap but yeah there is potentially a role in it again that might benefit some dogs but we don't know enough about it and i think studies are ongoing now there was a lot of stuff in the press about and it's pushed us more towards looking into what benefits might be yeah but i've noticed it's not quite as hot a topic as it once was and we need to be open to it we need to be open there might be a benefit yeah Yeah, but I guess it's hard for us to recommend anything. Obviously, we can't recommend anything to owners, but 
just getting them to be careful where they're sourcing it or what sort of contents it has in it. So I know there's a worry about the THC content and things like that in it. So is there any advice you give to owners or do you literally just leave the ball in their court? Yeah, I think if we are to look into it, there are certain routes I'd go down through the veterinary avenue. So I would try and source it through your own vet. Okay. And if your own vet isn't familiar with where to get it from, I'd get them to speak to a veterinary neurologist who can steer yeah. them in the right direction. So we're all coming right. to you now. Oh, absolutely. But I think that's it. We're happy to give you an idea of where we source it from. Yeah. So that's where the owners can then get it from through you, just yeah. to make sure it's the right thing, as you say, because if owners are on a budget, they are, and I do it with insurance. I go on to compare the meerkat. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll put it in. And I'll, Others are available. <laughs> indeed. So go compare. No, I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> no, don't. But I'll, I'll put the decent, I'll go for the cheapest insurance option. But of course, by going for the cheapest insurance option, you are basically ensuring that there are going to be things that you're going to completely miss out that might yeah. benefit with the cannabis oil. If you go for the cheapest option, it's probably not got in it what it needs to have in it. Yeah. So if you're going to do it, do it properly. That makes sense. And are there any other, I've talked about diet and CBD oils, are there any other weird and wonderful things that you can use? Yeah, I suppose the other one that's being looked into a bit, it was Tom Harcourt Brown at Bristol has been doing studies into this, is the vagal nerve stimulator. Okay. Now, vagal nerve stimulation dates back to ages ago, like before we even knew what medication was. When people had seizures, people would stimulate the vagus nerve by rubbing on the neck. So the stimulation from the vagal nerve, that, all that tone you're getting from that, will just dampen the electrical impulses that are firing off in the brain. Right. So that then calms a seizure. Now, what I mean, over many years and lots of work, vagal nerve stimulators are now able to be surgically placed. Oh, wow. And they can actually be turned on in in the event of a seizure and i mentioned tom at bristol he's been placing these in dogs and he's got early evidence just there may be some benefit again in some dogs now this sounds great but of course it comes with a price tag of course as well i was gonna say that sounds uh, expensive <laughs> yeah yeah i think the tens of thousands isn't a far-off figure that it oh, could wow. cost so it's not for everyone but it is something that may help and yeah. similarly it's unlikely you're going to do that and get a dog that's seizure free if that happens we'll all celebrate no one's going to be disappointed but don't go into it with that being the outcome you expect. Brilliant. Brilliant. No, that makes sense. I'm assuming surgical, there's no surgical options. There's certainly things that are being explored. And who knows, maybe there is a future in that, but that's some way off. And we always say veterinary medicine's some way behind human medicine and, and they're doing it in human medicine. So we, we probably will get there. Absolutely. Thank you once again, Mark, for these really insightful discussions. Honestly, I think we could be here for hours if we wanted to talking about all of these options. But that's unfortunately all we have time for in this episode. So please tune in next time where myself and Mark will be moving on to the fifth and unfortunately final instalment of the SMART approach, which is Taylor, where we will be discussing how to create that bespoke approach for each case and tackling some of the more hard and more ethical questions. So please join us next time. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks.